challenge, yeah. Um, what do you dream about? Sleep. sleep. <laughs> you dream about sleep. Said of, of a, a guy with two young girls in the house. Yes, amen. What else? What do you guys dream about? Life. Life. Okay. Dorothy's cooking. Oh, man. Hopefully she's watching and she'll get to hear you say that, Harold. <laughs> taking a bath. Is, <laughs> taking a bath. Is that what you said? <laughs> That's funny. Warmer weather. Amen. Amen. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. I realize even by just asking that question, what do you dream about? There's a couple of different ways we can take that, right? I mean, there's a way that we can take it where it's like these, these dreams or goals that we have for life. You know, I want to go here. I want to do this, you know, be here in five or 10 years. And that's not good. Or we could also mean actual like dreams that you have when you're sleeping. Now, how many of you are active like sleep dreamers? Anybody? Oh man, look at that. How many of you remember your dreams when you sleep. Oh, man, there's a decent amount of hands. I do not. Uh, but I was looking up this week. I just find this fascinating. It, you know, dreams are what happened at, happened at night when we close our eyes and our prefrontal cortex, it says help, that the thing that helps us with planning and logic becomes less active and our minds continue to work. That's what's happening physiologically in us. And that's why dreams make sense when we're dreaming but then most of the time when you wake up, you go, huh, what was that? Um, so I asked if you remembered your dreams, which is good. I usually don't. I wish I could. Um, I know some people, even some in this room, can recall vivid details of their dreams, and I think that's amazing. And I'm fascinated that by that. I wish I could. Um, some people even journal them and then look for ways for God to be speaking to them through the dreams. Anybody do that? Yeah, good. You should. We're going to talk more about this in just a moment. Do you know what the five of the most common dreams are, though? Flying, Flying and falling. Yep, that is correct. That's up there. Something about showing up naked. Or... Naked in public is definitely one of them. What'd you say? Losing your phone. Losing your phone. That was not in the, like in the top five, but that's what you dream about, huh? <laughs> See, and I would say, let's analyze that. Losing your phone is a, a security, right? Your phone is security. So that's the new version of being naked in front of people, I guess. Yeah. You know, being exposed, possibly. Number one, I did, I, I, what'd you say? Chased. Being chased. Yeah, yeah. Being chased is at the top. Number one was sex, and interestingly oh. enough. Yeah, like that was yeah. number one. Flying and falling was up at the top, too. Being chased was there. Uh, losing teeth. Oh, now see, some of you are like, yeah, 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 that is a strange dream to have, uh, being naked in public. And then another one is like being unfaithful to your partner. That's a weird one. Okay. So see, now as I say this, now you're going to like go to sleep tonight and be like, okay, what am I dreaming? You, you want to know, right? You feel good about yourself. I'm not like those weirdos. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But dreams are a critical part of our message today. You can see the title of the new series we've got called Living the Dream. But we're going to be talking about, you know, the ones that maybe you have when you sleep, or especially somebody we're looking at today who had some dreams, and kind of look at this. And so what we're going to be doing from, that, from now until Easter is we're going to be looking at the last part of Genesis in the Old Testament, looking specifically at the life of Joseph, examining his life. And what we're going to find today is that this, this young man, his life begins with dreams, 
But just because he has dreams doesn't mean his life is all up and to the right, and, you know, straight line, easy, you know, all this stuff. That along the way, there are some pits, literal pits, some potholes, and uh, it's going to take him a long time before he sees his dreams become reality. And so to get to know Joseph, what we want to do is we're going to just jump right into Genesis chapter 37. That's where his story takes place. And let me just introduce you to him right here. So Jacob, who is Joseph's father, lived in the land where his father had stayed. Okay, so just to give you a little history, you have Abraham. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. And then Jacob has Joseph. So this is kind of the patriarchs of the Old Testament, as we would call them. So Jacob lived in the land where his father Isaac had stayed, the land of Canaan. And this is the account of his family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers. Okay, so they're shepherds. We're learning about them. Uh, his brothers are the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. Hang on, we're going to figure out who they are in just a second. His father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about his brothers. Okay, let's stop right there. First impressions on Joseph. Go. Oh, absolutely. Tattletale. Anything else? What's that? One of the favorite. Yep. You're already picking that up. We're going to get that in the next section. It's absolutely, he's one of the favorites. You read that and you're like, he goes and he gives his father a bad report. If you're like me, you go, why would you do that, Joseph? Why would you be such a tattletale? You little teacher's pet kind of thing. What is going on here? I mean, I get, of you, I'm assuming some of you have siblings out there. Which one of you, which one were you in your family? Were you the tattletale, Amy, Tim, siblings in the room? Amy was the tattletale. How many of you were the person who was getting tattled on? (laughs) Yes, yes. But as we're introduced to Joseph, let's just be honest. Right away, our first uh, idea of him is not favorable, is it? At least it's not for me. I'm like, man, what is wrong with this little brown-nosing kid? He He needs to get over himself. But something is brewing in this family. The author here is trying to really key us in to some family dynamics that are going to be very critical. So let's keep reading here. It says, now Israel loved Joseph. Now Israel is another name for Jacob. Um, Israel means uh, struggles with God is what his name means. But Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Wow, getting a little family dynamics right away here, aren't we? Joseph was one of the youngest kids, and he was actually the 11th of 12 sons, born of Rachel, and Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife, okay? So let me just give you the quick rundown of this incredibly dysfunctional family. So Jacob was tricked, loved, Jacob loved Rachel, and he was tricked into marrying Rachel's sister. Uh, his father-in-law didn't think the older daughter shouldn't be married, so he tricks Jacob into marrying Leah. So that's his first wife, but then he does work for more years, and he eventually gets Rachel, but his heart was always with Rachel. But something interesting happened in this family dynamic is that you guys know that like in this time, the value here was having children. 
I mean, the wife, the, 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 the goal here is you've got to give this man some sons because that's your heritage, that's your lineage, that's your name going forth, that's your security, that's where you're passing on your birth, the birthright and the lands and all these things. But the problem was Leah could have children, but Rachel could not. And so just look at kind of what happened. Uh, Leah gives birth to four sons, those first four sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Okay, and so you can obviously see right away there's going to be a little bit of tension. There already was tension between these two sisters, but now there's even more, and you can almost picture in the background Leah just kind of poking the bear. Ha ha, I gave him kids. You didn't look. I'm so fertile, I've given him four sons. And so Rachel realizes that, you know, I got to do something. And this was a common practice in the day. So she says, you know what, Jacob, I'm going to give you my servant, Bilhah. So you can sleep with her. You can see if you can have kids with her, which he does. So he has two, two kids with Bilhah, Dan, and Nephtali. And then, not to be outdone, and thinking she was done having children, Leah says, ha-ha, I have a servant girl too. Here's my servant, Zilpah. So then she gives, her, gives him Zilpah, and he ha- they have Gad and Asher. Weird times, right? I mean, let's just be honest. This is messed up. Ladies, I am so sorry because this was not the time to be alive for you, honestly. Oh, well, and the women are in on it, right? I mean, the women are part of the problem. and every, I mean, it's a system, systemic problem. There's so much going on, you know. So Leah gives Zilpah to Jacob, two more sons. But then we discover Leah really wasn't done having kids. She has a couple more sons, which are who? Issachar and Zebulun. And then miraculously, Rachel does get pregnant twice, and she gives birth to two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And unfortunately for Rachel, she died during childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. And so are the days of our lives. This was a messed up uh, time to be alive for women. But here's a man with 12 sons now, spread out over four women. Steve actually, Steve Rogers said, you know what would be a good way to introduce this series? A clip of the show Sisters, Sister Wives. That about describes it. And because Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah and the servants, and because he was old when he had Joseph and Benjamin, those were his favorites. And we could take a sermon to talk about the problem of favoritism, the problem of favoritism in families, the problem of favoritism in life, and especially in churches, because the Bible continues to speak against that. But we're not going to do that today. We'll just say, don't show favorites if you have kids. Sibling rivalry can happen all on its own if you're not careful. You know, you don't have to show partiality in order to create tension in your family. But as you read this story, even these first few verses, you begin to pick up on a lot of parallels from the earlier parts of Genesis. Like when it says that Jacob, who is also Israel, um, he's very similar to his dad and his granddad. Some of those personality traits, the characteristics, they were kind of passed down. In fact, If you read the story of Abraham, it talks about Abraham giving birth or Sarah giving birth, Abraham in his old age. Parallel imagery between him, Abraham, and Jacob here uh, in the birth of Isaac and Joseph. But and then you look at Abraham, he only had he had a couple of sons. You know, he had one with his servant girl. And what does he do? He shows favorites, doesn't he? He absolutely does. He favors Isaac over Ishmael. And then you, what do you see with Isaac, who had twins, you know, Jacob and Esau? He does what? He plays favorites. And not just that he plays favorite, you begin to see this, this 
unfolding of the upending of the system. Because the way it was supposed to work is the firstborn son was supposed to get, every, you know, get most everything. They had the birthright. They were the blessed child. But Abraham has two sons, Ishmael older than Isaac, and who was the blessed child? Isaac. Jacob has two sons. Abraham, Isaac. No, Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau was older. Who's the blessed child? The younger. So if you're in this family here, you see that your lineage does what? Favors the younger. You see why the older boys might have been upset about some things? You see why when their dad's favoring the younger, they might be like, yeah, we don't like this kid at all. Probably causes a little bit of heartburn for them. And I'll be honest, as a classic middle child, I can relate to this. And you maybe, maybe anyone else can as well. You grew up in a family with multiple siblings and you had a younger sibling. Anybody else's younger sibling get away with everything? Yep, my parents listen to this podcast when they're walking. Mom and dad, you did. You let Jill get away with everything. Everything. I'm not bitter about it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's what we perceive. I'm just kidding, mom and dad, as they listen to this as they walk. No, it comes across that way, though, right? We feel that way. We feel like they're getting everything. Was it true? Probably not. But who hasn't had the thought that the youngest gets away with everything, everything and is favored? So you have this whole fam family dynamic taking place, which is really screwed up, right? I mean, it's really, 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 yeah, putting the fun and dysfunctional, absolutely. But then we see something else taking place, that uh, the mention of an ornate robe, right? Everybody's heard of Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat or the coat of many colors. But I must say, with my apologies to Dolly Parton and Andrew Lloyd Webber, a coat of many colors may not be the best translation for this. In fact, the NIV translates it an ornate robe. In fact, really, what's less important about this is what it was made of, and what is more important is what it signified. When his dad gives him this very special coat, it was giving him a position of authority. You know, you may think, well, why did he go tattle on his brothers? Could be that's the position he was put in. He was a manager. And as he's wearing this robe, his brothers have nothing but to see that what we're the lowly workers and you're the, you know, your management and you're, you know, all this, <laughs> you know, you've been set apart with a position of favor and authority. What do you think it would have been like to see your brother, your younger brother, parading around the house and the land in that coat? What do you think they would have thought about Joseph? You kind of understand why it says, yeah, they hated him and they did not have a kind word for him. Interesting, isn't it? The coat makes a big comeback in the story in a little bit. But let's just keep reading about our little tattletale here and see what else might cause a little heartburn for the brothers. It says here, it says, Joseph had a dream. Oh, here's our dreams. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. Listen to the dream. He said, listen to this dream. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Okay, seriously now. We have to start questioning Joseph's wisdom, don't we, a little bit? I mean, just to start telling these brothers this dream. In fact, as we were discussing this in our message community this week, I wrote down some quotes from some people in the room, like Elizabeth Pavey. She said, I'd be annoyed with him too. 
And then Steve Rogers said, that guy, I don't like him. Those are exact quotes from our meeting. We understand that, right? I mean, he's not winning any points with us. Yeah, you might have a special dream, but hey, Joseph, you might learn to keep your mouth shut. But he doesn't. He keeps going. It says, then he had another dream. Just keep it to yourself, Joseph. Please keep. Nope. And he told it to his brothers. Listen, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Let's just be honest. Now he just seems like a little punk, doesn't he? I mean, he's got to be 11. No, he's at least 17. He told us, you know, and his brothers had enough. And so the rest of the story goes like this. You can read it in chapter 37 of Genesis if you want, but I'll give you the rundown. His brothers, as I said, were shepherds. They take their flocks out to graze. Jacob, I guess not realizing just how much the brothers hated him, sends Joseph out to check on him and says, let me know if all is well with him, he says. Joseph goes, and he goes about a 50-mile journey. So this isn't a short trek. It's, you know, several days. And he goes to a place at Shechem, but they're not there. But there's, an interestingly, a man there who happens to be there. And he said, you know what? I heard him talking. And they said they were going to go town to Dothan, which was 13 miles down the road, or another day's walk. And then he goes there, and he finds them. But while he's still a ways off, the brothers look up, they see Joseph coming, and they start scheming. I mean, after all, they hate him. And their first thought, we've got to kill him. He's got to die. That's a pretty extreme thought, isn't it? Wow, we jumped really, to the, to really far on that one. The writer of Genesis lets us in on that conversation in Genesis 37, 19. Listen here, it says, they say, here comes the dreamer. They said to each other, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns, one of these pits, and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Ooh, can you feel the hatred in that? Can you feel the emotion behind that? I mean, what level do you have to be to be somebody that allows yourself to go that far? Not all the brothers were on board with this, though. Reuben, the older brother, convinces them not to kill him. Just throw him in this pit. So a cistern was a pit that was dug out that was meant to catch water during the rainy season so that you would have water during the dry seasons. We're told this was a dry cistern, so they throw him into it. But it wasn't just like waste. I mean, it's deep, and he's not getting out without some help. And so they throw him into the ground. Now, it's possible that Reuben, the firstborn, is just trying to save his own neck. One part of the story that you haven't heard is that uh, he wasn't in his father's good graces. You know why? Because he had decided to sleep with his father's servant, Bilhah. Heard that name before? Yeah. He, he knew Joseph was favored, and he thought, if I sleep with this servant girl, I will get my rights back. I will get my position back in the family. Didn't work that way for him. So he's trying to maybe save Joseph to help himself. But before he could help Joseph, some traders come along. They're, they're marching down the road, down to Egypt to sell spices. And another brother, brother Judah, says, you know what? Why sell? Why, why, why kill him when we can sell him? And that's what they did. 
for 20 shekels of silver, and that was the going price of a slave in those days, and that was about two years' wages for a shepherd. Pretty big price, isn't it? So they took Joseph's robe, they dipped it in goat's blood, and they took it back to dad, and they said, an animal got Joseph, and he's dead. And you think about this, why was, why was Jacob so willing to believe this? This must have been something that happened. But Jacob believes it. He doesn't even question it. And he's in terrible grief and mourning. It says that the family comes to try to cheer him up, but he will have none of it. And you thought your family was dysfunctional, didn't you? Man, this is one of the things I love about the Bible, is that it doesn't sugarcoat and it doesn't just give us the rosy pictures of everything great. This was one absolutely messed up family. And as I think about Joseph and I think about his brothers, there are many times along the way I want to just read into the story and go, don't do that. Don't do that. I mean, you see the jealousy of the brothers. I mean, wow. And this is a recurring theme in Genesis as well, this jealousy that continues to happen over and over I mean, you go back to the first brothers, you know, Cain and Abel, exactly. Cain was jealous of his brother Abel and killed him. I mean, look at the parallels here. He actually killed him because God favored Abel's offering more than his own. How could this happen? How could you get to this place to leave emotions so unchecked, letting them take us wherever they do, assuming that they won't lead us where we, don't, where we don't want to go. I think sometimes we do fail to recognize just how powerful our emotions are. And when it comes to an emotion like jealousy, we find out it's an attitude, an emotion we experience long before it manifests into an action. But it can be a very, very controlling attitude, can't it? Man, the thing that jealousy, the things that jealousy will push and motivate us to do. I mean, you go back to Genesis 4 and God's favoring of Abel's offering. Just look at what God says to Cain before he kills his brother. The Lord said to Cain, he says, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Wow, what a reminder here in the story of Joseph, just how powerful our emotions can be. Now, if you're like some of us, I think we grew up with the idea that emotions are just all bad. Don't ever trust your emotions. We're not saying that, but we are saying we need to always evaluate our emotions where we are in line with who God is and who Jesus is. And we can understand that sometimes if we leave our emotions unchecked, they can overpower us to a place, take us where we really never want to go or never thought we would be. That's part of the problem here, isn't it? But then there's another part of the problem. Joseph, he's part of the problem too. It's not just their jealousy. Flaunting his favoritism, not a good idea. Sure, his brother should have been more mature about it, maybe, but over and over, he just steps right into it, doesn't he? Just freely and willingly, hey, I had another dream. Let me tell you all about it. Seriously? That's what you want to do here in this moment? Knowing and sensing maybe how they feel, I'm sure they didn't hide it well. Why would he keep piling on? 
Why did he take the next step to tell them about the dreams? I mean, they were very familiar with dreams. In the ancient Near East, it was very common to have dreams. This wasn't unheard of. In fact, the idea of having a dream that you believed would elevate you to power, Joseph was not the first one to have a dream like this. There were others that had had dreams like that, showing them elevated to power. I just wondered, did Joseph really think that telling them about this would endear his brothers to him? Did he really think that if they heard this dream, they'll be like, oh, that's amazing. Can we start today? Can we just go ahead and bow down now? I look at Joseph, and I look at him in these early days, these early years here, and I think, man, Joseph, a little discretion and a little discernment would be very appropriate here. I understand how God used all this for a bigger plan, and we'll get there. But was it necessary? I don't know. Maybe there's a word for us in our lives as well. Are there times in our lives where we need a little bit more discretion and a little bit more, good Bible word here, discernment to figure out what we need to speak and when we don't need to speak? Sometimes we feel like we have a word from God, a dream, a thought, an idea, and our first inclination is to tell the world. We live in a time of the prophet a rebirth of the prophet, where everybody says, Thus saith the Lord. But not everybody, every time that somebody stands up and says, Thus saith the Lord, should they have said it. Sometimes we need to just sit with it. Bring it to a trusted friend, a spiritual counselor, advisor, to help us with that discernment. Because even though for Joseph, we know that these dreams, they were from God. We have to acknowledge that not everything that pops into our head during our prayer time or even in our sleep is a word from God. Sometimes we do need a good friend or a spiritual director to help us test and weigh the words and discern what God might be saying. Jesus talked about how sometimes we may have a message from God, but not always are those messages to be shared, not with everybody. Jesus said to the disciples when he sent them out, sometimes you're going to go places and that message of the gospel, the message that the kingdom of God has come near, it's going to be like casting pearls before pigs. Don't do it, he said. Learn when to not speak. Proverbs tells us a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. There's a little bit of that in Joseph, wasn't there? It may have been said very kindly, you know, we in the South, we used to, you know, bless their heart, get you away with saying everything. If you have to start it with bless their heart, don't complete the sentence. Thinking more about Joseph's dreams, if this was all the story we had, too, there's a little bit more, I think, for us here, because think about Joseph in this moment, at the end where we read. He was in a pit, now he's been sold. He's probably thinking back to these dreams if I'm Joseph, I'm thinking, what happened? There's no way this can come about now. These dreams would at this moment seem very distorted, wouldn't they? Distorted because who could anticipate how the story would end? Joseph in Egypt eventually rising to power and we're going to get there, but no one could have seen that coming. I assume when Joseph had the dreams that he had, he didn't think about world power. You know what he probably thought? I'm going to be in charge of this family one day. Our little spot in the corner of the world. He had no idea the fullness of that dream, how it was going to come about. His dream was very distorted. 
And by the end, his dream isn't just distorted, it's dead. It's absolutely dead. I mean, he's, as I said, he's been thrown in a pit. He's been sold. There's no way he thinks this is coming to pass. He's not ever thinking he's getting back to his family again. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever experienced the death of a dream? Something you really felt was going to come to pass, something maybe you genuinely desired, and along the way, somewhere it seemed to die. Joseph is a reminder to us that what we see isn't always the end of the story. It may seem like the dream is dead to us, but that doesn't mean the dream is dead to God. We've got to remember that. We also have to remember our dreams are not always on our timeline. We live in a microwave society. We want everything now. As Amy was leading us this morning, I thought, you know, what I love about being here on Sunday is it is a reminder to breathe. So many times we need to slow down and go at the pace of God. Amy shared this week, I hope it's okay if I share this, Amy, about 15 years ago she had a dream. Can I share this? 15 years ago she had a dream of leading worship with her brother. 15 years ago, this guy wasn't here in Iowa, out in California, really no heart towards God. I remember the early days of our coffees at Friedrich's. Man, those were fun, weren't they? Yeah. Thank you. And look at where we are today. That dream took 15 years. God's dream, God's timeline is not always ours. And in the, along that journey, there can be a lot of pain in having a dream. Do you know that? We think of having a dream and we think, yes. I had a dream. God gave me a dream. Can I tell you what? There's a lot of pain sometimes having to hold that dream and not being able to see it come to pass. When your life hits the potholes, when you go through the pit, maybe even going into exile to get there. And you know what makes sometimes this even worse? Is that sometimes you just can't even see God. I mean, when you're in the pit, God sometimes seems a million miles away. And I'm just going to tell you, I think we'd be foolish. We don't have this, but I think we'd be foolish to think Joseph didn't have these same thoughts. Down in a pit, looking up at the sky, hearing his brothers talking about whether or not to kill him or whether to, to sell him. God, where are you? What about the dream? I mean, if you look back at the passage that we read, did anybody see a mention of God there? No. There's no mention of God in the text, no mention of God with Joseph in the cistern. But there's the lesson, isn't there? Is that just because we can't see God doesn't mean God isn't working things out that we can't see. Is life a mess? Does God seem absent? We have to remember that God can use the difficulties and the pain of life to accomplish His purpose in and through us. For now, we can already see that God was not at all absent when Joseph was thrown into the pit. He's thrown, he sold to, to, to his actually some cousins, the Ishmaelite traders. 
and the sinful motives of his brothers and the actions that they took are going to begin a process that God is going to use to lead to the rescue of this family and ultimately the world. Sometimes there's a lot of pain in having a dream. Sometimes God feels far away. But the story of Joseph is God's not done yet. God's not done yet. And and we trust in that because I think that's why we have Joseph as an example to remind us when the darkness comes, when the dark days happen, when the dreams get far away, God has not forgotten you. God is still with you. And I do want to say a word about dreams here. I do believe that God still speaks to people through dreams today. I know that may seem very ghosty and challenging for some. I know in our enlightened, if it can't be measured scientifically world, we think that we're skeptical. But I'll tell you, I've never been able to resolve the words of the Apostle Peter when he quotes Joel in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has come down and he's revealed and Peter makes these words. He says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. God still speaks. Sometimes they're painful words, too, that we have to hold. They're not disturbing words necessarily, but holding on to them until they come to pass can be challenging. Genesis 37 ends like this. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. And that's the closing of that chapter. What happens to Joseph? The chapter ends with kind of great suspense like those good TV shows back in the day. What will happen to our hero? Will God deliver him from the hopeless predicament? Will we ever see Joseph again? (laughs) Will his brothers answer for their horrific behavior? Tune in next week and find out. Well, technically, you can read ahead if you want to. But we're going to leave our story hanging there for now. One important thing I want you to know about the story is that while there are things we can learn about God and his people in the life of Joseph, What I want you to understand is that this is part of a bigger narrative of the story God is writing. You see, if you go straight to Exodus, you might look at it and go, wait, why are the people there? Why are the Israelites there? What are they? This is why. This is a critical part of the story of God's ongoing redemption, freedom, salvation, and life. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come back. We're going to close with a song. But as we do, I just want you to bow your heads, close your eyes for just a moment. You feel like Joseph this morning? You feel like you have a dream? You had a dream, God spoke. But as you think about that dream now, you're going, God, where are you in this dream? God, I thought I heard you. Maybe you're even questioning the dream that you had. As we sing this closing song, I just want to give you the freedom. You can stay seated. You can stand if you want, whatever you want to do. But as you struggle with where you are in that process, allow Joseph to be an example. We haven't read the end of it yet, but I'll just tell you, God never left him. God ordered his steps. And I'll tell you, it's going to get a lot harder for Joseph before we get to the good stuff.